0: Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes.
1: You know, you can be very zealous and energetic for something and do it the wrong way and end up failing. One of the most famous plays in NFL history is titled with Wrong Way Marshall. Jim Marshall was on my favorite team, the Minnesota Vikings, I think back a week after the Super Bowl. The Vikings have the distinctive accomplishment of being in the Super Bowl four times and losing every time. (laughs) Anyway, on October 25th, 1964, in a game against the 49ers, Jim Marshall recovered a fumble and he ran delightfully, energetically. 66 yards the wrong way. <laughs> he was so ecstatic when he got to the end zone, he spiked the ball, and it went out of bounds. And it was a safety against the Vikings. When, when, when Marshall was running, he didn't think he was going the wrong way, did he? He thought he was going the right way. And, and he was full of confidence. And when he got in the end zone, he, he, was, he was full of joy. But afterwards, he found out it was all wrong. That he'd actually scored points for the other team. And that's what Paul reminds us of in this passage, doesn't he? The same can be true in our spiritual lives. It is not enough to be devoted to God and to be zealous for Him. It's not enough to be spiritual. So many people in our society say they're spiritual. That's not enough. That's not sufficient. We can run hard after God. We can think we're right, and we can end up in hell. So I want to look at our text this morning, and I see two main truths. Two main points. The first truth is that those who don't run may win the race. Those who don't run may win. And the second truth is just the opposite of the first. Those who do run may lose the race. Well, I'm going to spend most of my time on, this, on the second because that's where the text spends most of the time. But, but look, let's look at the first truth. And isn't that surprising? Those who don't run may win the race. That, that's in verse 30. Paul says, What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Do you see the language of the race in the word pursue? They, they didn't pursue righteousness. I think he means there not that they didn't pursue morals. They, they didn't pursue a right relationship with God. They didn't pursue right standing with God. Their lives were devoted, what, to to making money, to being a success, finding a wife or a husband, establishing their reputation. But the one thing they didn't do was seek God and to seek to have a relationship with Him. And maybe, maybe that describes you today. Maybe Maybe you're not seeking God and to be in a relationship with Him. Maybe you know in your heart that you're not seeking God. Anyway, that was the story of these pagans, wasn't it? That was the story of these Gentiles. But Paul says these Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness attained it. Now, he's not he's not talking about he's not talking about all Gentiles, is he? Uh, obviously not. Because to attain is to be right with God. Not all Gentiles are saved. So, so he's only talking about some Gentiles. He's talking about those who believe, those who win the prize, those who are saved. The, the word attain, The word attain again, is a, is a racing word, isn't it? It's, it's attaining that prize, winning, pursuing, and attaining. But here it's, that's the surprise of the verse, here it's not pursuing, and attaining. That is astonishing. How is it? How is it that those who aren't running win? That's what Paul's saying. How, how could they get a right relationship with God when they're not seeking it? That's the question, isn't it? What's the answer? I think the answer is actually in the little word Then. Or maybe it's translated, therefore, in your Bibles. That that word carries us back to all of chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. And what what does Paul teach there? That's where we find the answer to this rather strange statement. He, He teaches in chapter 9, we looked at this some months ago now, he teaches there that salvation is obtained... Because of God's electing grace. So those those who are saved are those who are chosen by God. Those upon whom God has set His love. So, So Paul here explains why these Gentiles attained, why they won the race even though they didn't pursue it. And it's because God set His love upon them. God chose them. God elected them. It's all because of God's grace, isn't it? And if you're a believer today, that's true of you as well. But that's not all that Paul says in verse 30. He doesn't doesn't only speak of God's election, does he? He speaks of their faith. They're they're righteous by by faith. Yes, they did do something, didn't they? They, they? They're not seeking a right relationship with God, but they believed. That's a major major teaching in Paul, isn't it? That that those who have a right relationship with God, if you're saved today, it's because you're trusting Him for salvation. These Gentiles understood that it was not their work for God, but their faith in God that saved them. But why did they understand that? Because they weren't running the race. So how how did they grasp that? And I think we're back to what we said before, because God chose them, because God elected them, because he poured out his grace upon them so that they saw it. So if you're safe today, if you have a right relationship with God, you need to stop right now and give him thanks. Isn't that what this verse is telling us? Your salvation, my salvation, has nothing ultimately. Yes, you believe, but ultimately it has nothing to do with you. Left to yourself, left to myself, you would destroy yourself forever. I am a mean, spiteful, vindictive, hateful, selfish, lustful person. Did you think I was talking about myself? I'm talking about you. No, I'm talking about me and you, right? I'm talking about all of us. That's, that's what we are, apart from the grace of God. So give thanks. Do you give thanks? Give thanks from the bottom of your heart if you are saved. That's what God has done. God saves people who don't pursue Him because nobody pursues Him. Do you ever get frightened about yourself when you look deep inside? Do you get frightened when you think of who you are? I do. I get frightened about myself. I see who I am in and of myself. But then, that's not the end of the story, is it? Thank God for His grace. He saved me. And I trust you. What amazing grace. Grace upon grace flows down. Flows down. Well, that's the first truth. Those who didn't pursue, those who didn't pursue, won. They won the race. How astonishing. Second truth, now directed particularly to the Jews who knew the Scriptures, who knew God's law, who knew God's requirements. The second truth, and that's in the rest of the verses, starting in verse 31, is that those who ran the race, lost the race. Again, just as paradoxical. We expect those who run to win. But he said those who ran did not win. How can that be? We read in verse 31 that Israel pursued a law leading to righteousness, but did not succeed in reaching the goal. I like the NIV translation here. Those who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. They've run the race, but they've lost. But notice what they were pursuing. They were pursuing the law to win the race, and they failed. What was wrong with the way they ran the race. If you don't win the race, you know, this, this isn't, this race isn't only one winner, is it? You know, we can't conceive of the race that way. Everybody who's a believer wins the race, so this isn't a race where only one person wins. This is a race where many people win, but, but these people don't win. They lose the race. They're, they're damned, right? Why not? Why? But that's the question Paul asks. Right? You see it in verse 32? Why? Why didn't they win the race? Now that, this is a huge question and answer then, isn't it? It's the most important question and answer in life. Why is it that people who run the race, who run to have a right relationship with God, why is it? Why is it that they don't win? Verse 32. Because... They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They ran the race as if they could win based on their own effort. How many people think that they will obtain the goal of eternal life if they perform good works? They think, do you think this way? I hope not. They think if they live a moral life, if they work hard in their jobs, if they're good citizens, that's sufficient. That's sufficient before God. I mean, look at our society, right? What, what a great thing to have a neighbor like that. They're moral and kind and generous. You know, it's not just in secular society that this takes place. Someone told me the story of a church in this town, a Southern Baptist church. I'm not going to get any more specific. But a Southern Baptist church in this town, there was a, it was a youth group, and the, uh, uh, um, or a young person's class, and the teacher said, okay, which kids in here aren't Christians? So that's the question she asked, and several several of the youth raised their hand. The teacher said to one student, okay, who's admitting, I'm not a Christian, what was her reply? How, how did she instruct the student? That's, that's a very key moment. The, the only thing she said to the student is, why aren't you baptized? Nothing about believing in Jesus. Nothing about trusting in Him for salvation instead of trusting in yourself. Nothing about the cross and what it achieved. Just a call to be baptized, which could easily be misunderstood. That's what you have to do to be saved. could easily be understood as saying, This is all that it takes to be saved just to go through that ritual. That's not not what Paul's teaching here, is it? In the same way, the unbelieving Jews in Paul's day were running the race the wrong way. They'd gotten off the pathway. Or they were running on the pathway, but they stumbled, they tripped, they fell as they were running. Paul quotes from Isaiah in verse 33. They tripped up on the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. What's that stone that they tripped over? It's Christ, isn't it? They didn't realize that salvation comes by believing in Him. They didn't look to Christ and Christ alone for the hope of forgiveness and for eternal life. They didn't realize that there was nothing they could do to obtain God's favor. favor. They were looking to themselves instead of to Jesus Christ. So as verse 33 says, they'll go to hell. Moral people, nice people, friendly people, faithful people in their jobs, but not heading the right way. Our daughter Anna runs cross-country and track. And uh, I remember her first cross-country race. She wasn't used to it, and she was running hard, but she got off the course. She started running the wrong way. So no matter how hard she ran, really didn't do much good, did it? Not when you're off the course. All that energy expended, all that effort, but heading the wrong way. And clearly, she didn't win that race. She didn't know what was going on. Many people think they'll be saved because they're trying hard to be good. Now, many of us in this room, maybe most of us in this room, I hope that's true, we understand these things. We we know this gospel, don't we? I mean, we're, we're taught this. Some of you have been taught this since you're a child. But it's easy, isn't it, not to trust God in our everyday lives, to actually forget the gospel as we live our lives. If we are suffering financially, we show we trust God by relying on His promise. He says, I'll never fail you. I'll never forsake you. We cling to that promise and trust Him. If we feel like we're a failure, do you feel like you're a failure? You feel like you're not accomplishing anything in life? Remember this. Whatever you do in life is what God has given you. When John the Baptist is going down in popularity, remember what some of his disciples said? You better you, you better do some kind of campaign because this other teacher, he's being marketed and he's doing great. And you're losing disciples. Come on. And and, and what, is, what does John say? A, a man cannot accept anything unless it's given to him from heaven. John says, I trust God, and he says, he must increase and I must decrease. Everything we do in life we trust is given to us finally. If we're lonely and feel alone and without friends, you know, I heard a little clip on NPR this week that more people, I I didn't hear the exact number, but more people than ever before in the United States live alone with, with no one else. That's, that's, a, that's remarkable, isn't it? Something for us to think about as we're ministering to people. More and more people live alone. That doesn't mean if you live alone, you're lonely. Does it necessarily? You can, you can live alone and not be lonely. But surely many people who live alone are lonely and feel isolated and friendless. And if you, if you are lonely, and you live alone, what do you do in that situation? You trust. There's a lot of things to do, but the fundamental thing is we trust God loves you, doesn't he? He's with you. He cares for you. He'll provide all your needs. He'll provide your social needs. He is a faithful God as you give yourself to him and as you, what, you become involved in the body, the church, as well, and you invest in other people's lives, you don't focus on yourself but others, God will will meet you in that situation. If our health is failing and worry strikes and the devil attacks, we entrust our lives into His hands knowing that every hair, every hair on our head is counted. He loves us. And he cares for us. You know, we can agree with the gospel in our heads. I didn't cover every circumstance here, right? But if you're not trusting God in your circumstances, and we all, we all face that, don't we? We're called afresh back to trusting him with whatever is happening in our lives. Well, these Jews had clearly gotten off track, these unbelieving Jews. they're trying to be right with God by works. And so Paul prays for them in verse 1. Really, the chapter division there isn't a a good one. 9.30 through 10.4, I think, is one section. Really, really chapter 9 should have ended after verse 29. Usually, usually, by the way, the chapter divisions are quite good in our English Bibles. But every once in a while, they're not the best. And I think this is not one of the best chapter divisions. So really, verse 1 of chapter 10 continues what's... Paul has been saying in the previous paragraph, and he prays, he prays that the Jews will be saved. Now, sometimes I've heard, I've heard people say, we shouldn't pray for non-Christians. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, not very many people say that. But some people do say that. They say we shouldn't pray for non-Christians. They say we should pray for the word to spread, but we shouldn't pray individually for non-Christians. Now, why would anybody say that? Because there's not a lot of verses in the Bible that tell us to pray for unbelievers. We don't, we don't have a lot of those in the New Testament. But, but we do have one here, right? There's not a lot of verses that say that, but we have, I think, a very clear, clear verse that we're to pray for unbelievers right here. And I think this shows us most of you weren't even wondering about this, but somebody may say that to you someday. I think it's good and proper and right to pray for the salvation of others. I don't think it's right to say, well, this is just limited to the Jews. We can pray for the Jews, but not anybody else. Yeah. No, I think there's a principle here that it's right and good to pray for the salvation of unbelievers. That's probably not very controversial. I hope it isn't. But are you doing it? Are you praying for the salvation of any unbelievers right now? Now that's the question for us, I think. Are you longing for others to come to Christ? One way that you can test yourself is, um, i praying for anyone to come to faith. Are you praying for their eyes to be open? Or are you don't, or not even thinking about that? What, what's the answer if you're not even thinking about that? The answer is, you ought to feel really guilty right now. Now that's not, that's not what I'm saying. And the answer is, draw closer to God, isn't it? Draw closer to God. Experience His love, His power, and His grace. When you know His love, when you know the sweetness of it and the power of it, you'll be filled up and you'll, it'll overflow in your life. Your affections will be changed. His heart will be your heart. We talk about what we love, don't we? I mean, I, I, I love football. I like talking about the Super Bowl. I like, I like talking about the Cardinals and the Cats, you know? What we love, what we love, we, we talk about. So, so I think the issue is an issue of love. It's, a, it's, it's an issue of affection. It's an, it's an issue of what our hearts are drawn towards fundamentally. Paul is praying for the Jews of his day. They are the chosen people. They are the people of God in the Old Testament. They failed to believe, most of them, not all of them, they failed to believe that Jesus was the Christ. In verse 2 he says, they had a zeal for God. Isn't that remarkable? They had a zeal for God. We're We're not talking about pagans here. We're talking about people who are zealous But their zeal wasn't matched by knowledge. Zeal, what good is zeal without knowledge? Fundamentally, finally. That's true in everyday life. You know, I'm just terrible at fixing things around the house. Diane can tell you that. Everybody who knows me knows that about me. And so what I've often done in my life is I try to fix something with zeal, but without knowledge. And I end up breaking things, right, you know? I remember many years ago, I broke the garage door of Diane's parents. I broke the handle. I couldn't get it fixed. I just kept forcing it. You know, I just think more strength will help. But it didn't. It just broke it, right? That's zeal, but without knowledge. Zeal without knowledge isn't effective. That's what, that's what Paul is telling us here. But how many people think that way today? They think, well, I'm sincere. I'm sincere. I'm working hard for God. He must be pleased. They say things like, God would never, God would never condemn a sincere Buddhist who faithfully practices his religion. I mean, after all, they're doing the best they can with what they know. God would never condemn a Muslim person who tries his best to please God. Or they'll say, you know, all that really matters is if you love Jesus. I mean, doctrine doesn't matter. What matters is whether you love Jesus. I mean, that sounds good, doesn't it? That, that's what's really fundamental. Doctrine divides. Loving Jesus, that's what it's all about. Y- yes, except for which Jesus are we talking about? There's a lot of Jesus out there on, in the marketplace. Is it the Jesus of the Scriptures? Is it, is it the Jesus as He's revealed in the Bible? People pour, pour all kinds of content into who Jesus is. No, no, sincerity and zeal and passion, they're not enough. They must be informed by knowledge. Truth matters. That's what Paul is teaching us here. Why is it that zeal and sincerity in, in religious things, why is it that that's not enough? Why are they insufficient? And verse 3 tells us, those who are zealous for God and sincere in their beliefs, but who don't trust Christ alone for salvation are ignorant of God's righteousness. And they try to establish their own. So you you see that here? First, they they don't know about God's righteousness. They they don't know the attribute. I think this is saying two things. They don't know the attribute of God's righteousness. They don't know about God's holiness, His righteousness in that sense. They don't know about His perfection. And therefore they think their own works can qualify, you see. They don't know the standard. And therefore they think their pitiful efforts can count. They don't know that God's righteousness and holiness is so great that He demands perfection, not just a good attempt. They don't know the righteousness of God, and this is how the ESV translates it. Uh, I think it's righteousness coming from God. They don't know that righteousness is a gift of God, therefore. But I think it's both ideas. Righteousness is an attribute, and righteousness is a gift. I think they're both there. They don't know that the only way to be right before God is if God's righteousness is a gift from Him. But those who know God, those who are believers, we know we can't contribute anything to our salvation. We know that we need God for everything. We know we're sinners who need need God's mercy. We're like the thief on the cross who deserved to die, who said to Jesus, Have mercy on me. Remember me. Remember me. We call out to God, remember me. We're like the prodigal son who says to the father, forgive me. We're like the tax collector who beat his breast and said, have mercy on me, the sinner. That's a sign that you understand the righteousness of God. When you call out for mercy... But those who are running the wrong way try to establish their own righteousness. They think they can reach the goal of eternal life based on their own goodness. So they may point to their church attendance. They may think of their service in church and in the community and their care for others, all good things in and of themselves. They may be proud of the fact may be increasingly unlikely in this day, but they may be proud of the fact that they've never looked at pornography. They may compare themselves to others, even others who are Christians, seeing the faults in these Christians and say, I live a better life than that. I'm more moral than that other person. They may congratulate themselves for that, but they don't realize God demands Perfection. Really, their religion is a cloak for what? Self-worship. They're establishing their own righteousness. Their religion is really all about worshiping themselves. It's really idolatry. They think it's religion. It's actually not religion at all. It's actually a violation of the first commandment. When they get to the end zone of their lives, they're going to be shocked, aren't they? They're going to think, I really ran a good race. And God's going to say, actually, you're worshiping yourself. Your whole life was designed to bring yourself praise and honor and glory. Your whole life was designed so people would admire you and praise you for how virtuous you were. You didn't submit to God's righteousness at all. Because you never bowed before him and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. You advertised yourself as a good person. But those of us who are saved, we know we're poor and miserable and blind and naked. We confess our only hope is the righteousness of Christ and not our own righteousness. Righteousness, as verse 4 tells us, does not come via the law. It says there that Christ is The end of the law. Now now there's some dispute here. What does he mean? Christ is the end of the law. There's a dispute. Is Christ the end of the law? Or is he the goal of the law? This is one of the most debated verses in Paul. Does Christ bring the Mosaic law to to an end in the Mosaic covenant? Or is he the goal to which that law points? And I think the answer is... It's both. It's not an either or. Both are true. Remember the racing image with which we started. When you're running a race, it's a, there's a goal, right? There's a goal at the end of the race. When you get to the goal, you've also got to the end. Both are true. I, th- I think it fits the context. He's the goal, and he's the end. The law pointed to Christ. The sacrifices and the different laws point to Him. He's the goal. The law prophesies of Christ. It reaches its climax in Him. He fulfills the law. But He's also the end of the Mosaic Covenant. We're no longer under that covenant any longer. Once He has come and that to which the law points has come, we're not under that covenant anymore. That doesn't mean... I'm not saying, hear me carefully, I'm not saying that there aren't commandments for us as Christians. Surely there are commandments, but we're not under that covenant anymore. Christ is the end of the law. He's that to which the law points. Our, our, our faith is focused on Him because the law, the law points to Him. We don't need the Sinai covenant any longer. The, The Old Testament is the Word of God. But it's the Word of God that points to Jesus Christ. And therefore, when we interpret and read the Old Testament, we see Christ. We see the goal and the end of the law. The ESV says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. I think it's better to translate it, Christ is the end of the law resulting in righteousness. I think that fits with verse 10 which literally reads, for with the heart one believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth one confesses resulting in salvation. Christ is the goal of the law and the end of the law and the result is righteousness is given to those who trust Him for salvation. So I close with this. Or question or questions for me and you who am I trusting in as you're running the race? Who who are you running the race for? Whose righteousness are you clothed with? Yourself? Or is it the righteousness that comes from God? If it's the righteousness that comes from God, you're free, aren't you? Isn't that the greatest freedom in the world? Because we don't have to pretend we're good runners of the race. I'm not a good runner of the race. It's Christ. It's Christ who clothes us with His righteousness, and we run the race looking to Him, depending upon Him, relying upon Him, leaning upon Him, finding Him to be our all and all. Let us ask God, as we close, for the strength to depend upon Him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a joy it is to run the race trusting in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And what a burden it is to run the race and to depend upon ourselves and our own righteousness. And, Lord, this is an awesome text because if we run the race the wrong way without understanding the gospel, we will be damned. And Lord, we want life. So help us to trust in Christ and to rely upon Him for everything. We pray Your Holy Spirit would help us. In Jesus' name, amen.